Hello, and welcome to History in Reverse, a father-daughter science fiction podcast. Today, we will be discussing War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Hello everyone, my name is Caroline and I'm here with my father, Richie. Hello. And we're continuing our project to read a science fiction book every month or so and uh, discuss it. And so today we'll be doing uh, War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Um, this is our fifth book uh, that we've done and it's going to be the final one in our series of uh, weird alien books. Um, right, Dad? So all the books we've read so far have sort of had strange, strange aliens in them, right? right? So we're going to discuss this one today, and then I think we're going to do a short podcast for December that summarizes all yeah, of them. It compares different aliens. Yeah, and compares them across. I could see like a lot of themes coming up and um, yeah, a, lot of, a lot of similarities between them. I think it's really interesting. Um, so to jump in, um, starting off with H.G. Wells and some information about him, you looked up some stuff? Right, so interesting thing about this this, this book I think it's kind of appropriate since it's very close to Halloween. Mm-hmm. So, H.G. Wells um, was an a English writer, and uh, the book was published in 1898, which was before like World War One and stuff. Which is kind of I was kind of surprised actually. And this is the oldest book that we've read too. Yeah. So far. yeah. Yeah. What happened was he grew up. Let's see. He was born in 1866. And he grew up kind of poor. His his mother was like a maid, and his father did this that the other thing. Tried some businesses that didn't work very well, mm-hmm. and he was apprenticed to to some. I forget what it was, but the he hated it basically. So he at one point in his early in his life he discovered someone's library, and he was mm-hmm. he started reading like crazy. So he wound up becoming a teacher, mm-hmm. and uh, and then he started writing. His very first novel was Time Machine, which yes. I think everybody's read by now. Yes, I've read Time and Machine. It was only written like two or three years before War of the Worlds. And uh, some of the other books he wrote was um, Invisible Man, The Island of Dr. Moreau. There's a bunch of utopian books that he's read. He, and he wrote both fiction and nonfiction, so he, his, his uh, list of, of works is quite large. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the basic thing about him. So there are two historical things I want to mention. So one is that uh, War of the Worlds is famous because in, uh, when was it, like 1930 something, Orson Welles, who was a famous actor, at the time he was a famous actor on radio, mm-hmm. and radio was kind of a big thing, and he did a broadcast, uh, like a production, a radio production of the show, of, of the book War of the Worlds, which mm-hmm. you can actually listen to, it's available on YouTube. Mm-hmm. They they kind of staged it to sound like a news broadcast. Mm-hmm. So allegedly, these aliens came to New Jersey, <laughs> <coughs> and uh, there's a sort of story that it caused white panic and stuff, which is not true as it turns out, mm-hmm. but it makes a good story. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's one part of it. The other interesting thing about H.G. Um, Wells's book. I think it's the first novel that had aliens from other planets coming mm-hmm. to Earth. I mean, clearly there's stories on beings from other worlds and, and mythology and mm-hmm. stuff, but not not in this kind of science fiction. Not like in an invading kind of way. <clears throat> right. Yeah. There's there's something that's kind of very funny, um, very funny now anyway. It's called the the Great Moon Hoax, which happened in 1835. Mm-hmm. What happened was around that time, some some scientists built a more powerful telescope, and there was a newspaper in New York called New York Sun, which mm-hmm. decided to essentially make up a story that with this powerful telescope, they discovered men on the moon. Oh. <laughs> and they were Batman, you know, but they had wings and they flew and had... So that whole series of articles about this, mm-hmm. they sold a lot of papers. <laughs> so the idea of like beings living on another planet was around. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. we're talking about 1835, but... They never heard appeared in the science fiction book like this. Right, and a lot of the ideas that he comes up with here sort of um, become like classic kind of science fiction ideas that right. we see repeated elsewhere, and we'll we'll go through those as we go through the story. You were telling me before that in the so this takes place the story takes place in England, right? 
and in the hometown. These are actual places, right? Right. So the the, the he basically essentially describes his life. He's a writer, so he he works from his house, mm-hmm. and and the town is walking, right? I think so. Yeah. And today, I guess because he lived there, they have a, a sculpture of of like a. And motion invading machine. Yeah, <laughs> like a tripod. Which I think is the cutest thing. I'll try to thing. remember to add a link to and uh, show notes so you can you can take a look at it. I think that's adorable. Okay, great. So let's let's jump into the story. I guess overall, first of all, thinking about um, the structure. Um, we've dealt with a lot of books that have interesting structures. This is a pretty much first person point of view, um, more or less. Um, yeah, from two people. Right. Well, I mean, it's still first person. It's mm-hmm. so. The thing about it is that the narrator is never named. A lot of the characters in the story are not named. And the narrator, you know, lives in England. The story is from his point of view, but he's telling it from some future point in time. So he's sort of looking back and saying, like, I, I did these things in the past. And because of that, it allows for two things. It allows the narrator to tell other people's stories and experiences. So at one point in time in the middle, he just sort of stops his own story and starts telling the story of what happened with his brother because right. he wants to tell the story of what happens in London, basically. So he t- he tells the story that his brother had ultimately told him about his brother's experience. Um, and it also gives the reader sort of the hint that the narrator survives everything. Right. Which is, you know, I, I think very effective in this mm. kind of story where there's like so much death and destruction and stuff happening. So... I mean, the story is sort of uh, straightforward. It goes chronologically, but I thought uh, maybe reading the first couple um, lines of the story. Oh, actually, the first paragraph is really long. I didn't realize how long the first paragraph was. I was going to read the whole first paragraph. I'll, I'll read the first couple lines or so. Um, the I was surprised personally about how good... Have you read this before? Yeah. Oh, okay. See, I've never read this one before. I didn't expect the writing to be this good. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because... Well, it's like, I mean, it's it's... This is, you know, 19th century England people did lots of writing and reading. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, no TV, no internet, that kind of stuff, no radio. So yeah. they had to entertain themselves somehow. I sort of, I think, you know what it is, it, because it's been so, like, the this idea of, like, Martians invading Earth nowadays seems so, like, generic almost. Like, it seems, like, overdone. Yeah. That I, like, didn't think that the original work was... It didn't like strike me that maybe the original original words like a serious piece of literature because it felt like a very like overdone in the media kind of thing, but that's because now it's twenty eighteen. Right. No. So I'm just gonna read the first couple lines of uh this of the book. No one would have believed in the last years of the nineteenth century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. That as men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. So, I mean, that's just the first, like, two sentences. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's fabulous. And that actually gets to one of the main themes of the story um, overall, which is the sort of the... He plays on these themes of, like, um, like the animal kingdom and power structures and stuff, and the you right. know, characters later making the comparison between men and ants and the Martians and men. Right. So. Should we just go to the plot? Just yeah, let's just start from, yeah. So where does it start? So it starts, you know, he's uh, hanging out in his office mm-hmm. and uh, in a, and, and in this meteor that comes. Right, that they, they see through a telescope, right? Well, no, the, the, there's been some reports, people observing Mars, that all of a sudden they see like smoke Mm-hmm. something happening on side of Mars. Mm-hmm. And then sometime after, there's this meteor with lots of green light kind of coming down. And mm-hmm. it, it turns out it lands close to his hometown. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it Horsell Common? Yeah. Is the, is the place. So, you know, he finds out about it, and he and a bunch of his friends decide to go and check it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they go and um, just like a couple of his sciencey buddies go to see where the first... Meteor is, and he's not the one that's there when it opens, right? It's the other. It's the other scientist, Ogilvy, or right. Well, I mean, they, they get there and find there's the cylinder, mm-hmm. kind of kind of buried because it made a big hole when it hit. Mm-hmm. Was it making noises or anything? It was really hot. Was hot, that's right? one thing that happens with all the all the Martian stuff is like super super hot, and and temperature is like a big problem throughout the story. Well, I mean, you would 
you would expect it to go into the atmosphere like a meteor burn up. Right, so, so right. So it made it this big hot. hole in the ground, and it was this sort of, it's like a cylinder with like a flat side. Right. And it the flat side's sort of up so that people like stand on it at times and stuff, because it, it takes it a while for it to do anything. And, you know, everyone thinks initially it's a meteor, it's a rock. Right. And then they sort of slowly start to realize that it's hollow on the inside, and then it starts to unscrew. Right. That, that's when it kind of starts freaking out. <laughs> yeah. But it's there for a while. It's there for like a solid day before yeah, it opens. Yeah, yeah, I th One of the things I think is interesting about the story is that the the re the way the people react, the way the humans react. I, I think it also happened like on Sunday, right? So it's like, this is, this is or life. Or it, it was a Friday. There was a, because there's a chapter titled Friday Night or something like that. Right. So it probably landed like on Friday night, but by like Sunday it was a... You know, weekend kind of excursion where people wanted to go check it out. Yeah, as, yeah. As a little weekend adventure. Yeah. So, it, it's sort of interesting because the technology of the time that the humans had sort of limits the way people react. So, the narrator, you know, notes that word is traveling about this weird meteor and people are sort of start, starting to come and see it and sort of like a vacation almost kind of thing. Well, it's, it's, this is Victorian England, I guess, you know, in yeah. late 1900s, so best communication that you have is telegraph mm -hmm. and newspapers right right and trains mm -hmm. and those are like the main things and several of the newspapers in the story start printing information about this weird meteor right right and, right. They, and some of it is a little bit off and and, yeah. and people saying that that they don't believe it mm -hmm. and but some people are curious and you know that's what people would do in those days is is on weekend go into the country yeah and this is kind of like in the suburbs you know further suburbs of mm -hmm. london so yeah so it takes it like a, like at least a full day to open. Yeah, more than that. Yeah, yeah, because the narrator goes and sees it when it's still closed, and then like goes home and tells his wife about it, and yeah, and they have a, like is it Saturday night they have a dinner or Sunday night they have a nice dinner. Yeah, the, the, and, it's that first whatever that first night is they have a nice dinner, and then and, the next. And one of the things he says is this is like a nice dinner. I, I I'm gonna have. Didn't realize that that was the. Nice dinner I was going to have for a very long time. Yeah, I wasn't going to be happening. Exactly, and the the writing is fantastic when it comes to sort of um, this sense of like the calm before the storm because mm -hmm. he does that like with the foreshadowing where he sort of is saying you know, like we didn't know what it was we were dealing with but we were going to find out. Right. Because <laughs> it's it's so interesting like he he wakes up the next morning I think at his neighbors like gardening and they're talking about this like weird meteor and it's like we the reader know. I mean, maybe now as the reader in 2018, we know that it's full of, of meteor, full of aliens. I don't know what the reader at the time would have thought right. about it. So yeah, again, just a little bit of historical perspective. What I've, when I was reading about H.G. Wells, they said around the time, the kind of invasion of Britain novels were very popular. Mm. It's like you know the the Germans were going to invade and and mm. stuff. So it probably feels was was like in that genre a little bit. Yeah, which I think is very effective. But I'll, I'll talk about, um, remind me later, I'll talk about the genre more. So, the I mean, ultimately the cylinder opens. Right. And the Martians come out. And they're kind of like brownish globby things. Yeah, he doesn't describe them very well then there. Yeah. They don't seem to be very happy mm -hmm. about all the people around there. Yeah. And they start <coughs> making things like like there's some noise coming mm -hmm. from, from, the, from the pit. Right. And yeah. somebody gets too close and they use the... Heat ray. Yeah. So the heat ray is sort of interesting because this is, I, or we think, the first time a heat ray pops up in science fiction. As far as I know. As far yeah, as, yeah, as far as we can identify. And so, I mean, this was an original idea. It's so funny because I was like, I was reading and he's describing this, um, not exactly a beam because he doesn't really describe like a, you can't really see you it. You can't see it, right? I mean, you can't see heat. Right. right. You, but you can certainly feel it. Right. right. So it's just like suddenly like, every, like everything like in a line would be on fire or be combusting right. or whatever. And I'm and I was reading it as you know a reader now, and I'm like, is he describing a laser? <laughs> That's kind of what it was. That's kind of what we would think of it now, right? Yeah. But, so, but he calls it the the heat ray, and that's when uh, things start to get bananas. Right, like his science friend who was one of the people who brought him there is killed. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of stuff on Horsel Common gets just burned. Mm -hmm. And I think even some houses nearby, like the some town nearby, where things start getting yeah, on fire. Yeah, things just start getting, getting caught on fire. He notes that when it hits water, the water steams and boils. People are, are getting killed. And then so then people start to scatter. Well, so yeah, that, I think that's when he decides to, to 
bring his wife to another town to, to, right. to stay with his cousins. Right. So he runs home. Uh, well, he borrows a horse and, and, and cart from an uh, innkeeper, the innkeeper. Right? and then has a hard time convincing it because people are starting to leave. To, yeah. Um, he pays him. He gives him extra right. money. Right. Um, he, so he gets this like horse and buggy kind of situation, gets his wife. What did he call it? It's a dog, dog cart. cart. Yeah. What is a dog cart, do you know? It's like a small, I think pretty sure it's like a smaller horse and buggy. Mm -hmm. It's like, because an actual like full buggy is like a big contraption with like multiple wheels. All right. This is carts. like two wheels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's got two yeah. wheels. So he brings her, he brings his wife and this and their servant um, from the house to uh, like a, a neighboring cousins, town. Like to the cousins. Leatherneck yeah. or something. Yeah, Leatherneck, I think it is. And then, but that time it's like nightfall and starting to rain. Right. Is it like a thunderstorm? Right. And he, and he promised to bring the court. You know, he borrowed the horse and the cart. He was right. going to bring it back and then walk back. Right. It was just a couple. I don't know, 10 miles or whatever. Yeah, he was just really concerned about getting his wife out. You know, he right. didn't necessarily want to leave the house alone right. or anything like that. So he goes back to bring back the, the buggy and um, he crashes, I forget. Well, because the, there's he's in a thunderstorm. Right. And the horses get spooked and he starts seeing the tripods. Right, right, right. And the horse gets spooked and that's how. So so this is the this is my favorite scene, which is the first time he describes seeing the Martians in their tripod machine. So there's a few different machines. Right, the right. So you can imagine the scene. It's like it's at night, right? It's, right. There's a thunderstorm with lightning going off. Right. And in the flashes of lightning, all of a sudden he sees this huge Giant thing, thing walking yeah. past. You know? Yeah. So it's like a big, it, it's sort of hard to visualize, but it's sort of like this big um, metal body and there's like a sort of like a head portion. There, there has... There's lots of illustrations on the internet, yeah. <laughs> including some from the original book. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's kind of like a disc on, on, on three legs and yeah. kind of walking. Yeah. And so, it, but it's huge and it's like walking right next to him in the field. And so his horse spooks and they crash and the horse, this is the first of many horses that die in this right. story. And uh, I think he, he hides in, in, a, in a, like a... He's like in a puddle or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. He, yeah. He like stays down. I think he ends up walking through the forest to go back home. Right. At that point, but I just love the imagery of the like the the rain and the thunder and lightning and everything with the giant tripod walking by. Right. Also, the tripods were carrying like a little thing case mm -hmm. underneath the the whatever like the disc on the top. Mm -hmm. There were three legs, and underneath would look like it was carrying something. The thing that was carrying was the heat ray machine. Right. Yeah. So it would kind of point it at things and go. Pssst. Yeah. <laughs> so that and that's like the, that's the first weapon we see from the right. the Martians, but not the last. So he walks back to the forest and goes he back goes, to his house. Yeah, and he sees the the innkeeper dead, mm -hmm. right along the way. And I think he still like almost steps on him or something. And it's... he he like sees him and like checks to see if he's alive or whatever, and then he's kind of grossed out because he touched a dead body. Right. Like, yeah. And then he meets the the artillery man. Or, artillery, artillery and, man. Yes. In his house. Thank you. <laughs> so narrator, oh, there's a there's a great scene. I think that happens there, which is when he looks out the window. Right. So the other thing happening at this point is that the military is starting to respond. Right. To the Martians, they're not having much success. No. Um, but but they have responded. So there's like uh, gunfire that he hears and. There's more Martians sort of coming up in these tripods, and there's more heat rays, and like a lot of things are on fire. Um, right. People are being evacuated from his home, right. like his hometown, and he goes. Well, by the time he's there at night, you know, the the night he saw the the tripod, the the town's pretty much emptied out. Yeah. So he goes back home, goes upstairs, and looks out the window, and there's an, another great, like visually, a uh, great scene of him like in this dark house looking out the window and sort of describing the, like the fiery landscape that he sees and all right. the trees are alight and all the fields are like barren and, and just hearing the, the sort of the sounds of what's i guess what sounds like war like at, yeah. sort of in the distance but like close enough for him to see it and that's when the artillery artillery man the soldier the soldier right <laughs> stops by the soldier and actually he gives him a little bit of advice before they leave saying make sure you bring some provisions with you yeah so he he loads up his pack pockets with some food and stuff right and now it starts like he he wanders all over the place he goes so many so places so he wants to go back to to meet his wife as he was planning right but then he winds up there's this whole scene at the river I just don't remember the order of things. I know that. Right. So I think everywhere. he had to like 
across the river and there was a ferry or something and mm-hmm. he, he get gets there and there's like huge crowds of people right mm-hmm. uh, i guess that would be like the next morning yeah well that, and this is when he's also describing how like all the trains are packed and right um, the, there's some train that was destroyed uh, right that's part of what he sees at the window is the train that's on fire so i just don't where does he go next with the soldier i forget i just forget no so they they, they i think they kind of walk towards the ferry and the soldier goes with some soldiers and uh, right, they separate and he goes to the ferry and there's like a whole big scene at the river where there's a crowd of people trying to get across and, mm-hmm. and you know there's some small boats little boats and 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 I think two Martians show up and these these uh, tripods. Oh right, and they start. This is when they start boiling the water. Right, so right. they they start killing some people. Boils the water, and like he, at one point, dives under to mm-hmm. try to uh, save himself. Yeah. So part of this is that this heat ray situation is a big problem because nothing, nothing is stopping this heat ray. It seems it goes through everything. So it's sort of like once it hits you, it hits you. That's kind of it. So they're coming you know, towards him across the water, and he dives under, I think sort of trying to maybe make a shield between himself right, and also to yeah, hide. Right. And so lots of people start jumping off the boats into the river to hide uh, from the Martians. And then I think, is this when they hit, hit Yeah, so there, there was like artillery and some big guns nearby, and mm-hmm. they actually get a salvo off and knock one of the tripods over. Right, and it actually kills the Martian. It, uh, right, it kills it, but then the other ones take care of the guns right away. So. Yeah. So, and that, it seems like by the end of the story, that's the one Martian they killed. They don't kill No, there's him. another one when, when the ship attacks. I don't think that those ones actually die because he makes a comment later that they only ever actually killed one. But I, I'm not sure if they just didn't know about because that's like the brother's story, but we'll get there. Right. But yeah, so they kill the one, everyone's happy, and then the other two that are there like carry the other one's body away. Everyone's sort of able to narrowly escape right. the river. And he gets burned and stuff. Right, by the hot water. Yeah. And then he ends up in a boat. He ends up in a boat. And then, so then there's a whole big description of this, uh, people trying to escape from, away from the, these things. And what happens when you have lots of these refugees, people who just load up whatever they can into whatever mm-hmm. thing they can and start going. And he winds up um, going on some side roads and he meets the, these two women and another buggy. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. Oh, and, with the revolver. Yeah. So they were being accosted by some ruffians. Yeah. <laughs> oh wait, no. Is it? Is it him or is it his brother who does that? Isn't I think his, that's him. Isn't his brother who beats up the? Oh. It's the because the brother's oh, a no, boxer. You're, no, you're right. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. So because right, what so. happens is after the river, main narrator. Kind of says, and then my brother told right, me what exactly. happened in London. Main narrator's chilling in a boat, and that's when he meets the curate. Right, that's right. Right, okay, so part of the problem with this is that no, nobody has any names, so it's a little bit hard to keep track of. So he, so main main narrator is chilling in a boat, because I remember, because he doesn't have a shirt, and he's got, like, burns and stuff. Right. And he meets this man that he refers to as the curate, who's, like, I guess a member of the church or to some extent. They They travel a little bit together, but then the narrator sort of stops his story to describe the story he would hear later from his brother about what happened in London right. at basically at the same time. Right. So it's still, like structure-wise, it's still the main narrator speaking, but talking about his brother, who also has no name. So the, so right. the brother's in London. The brother's like a medical student. He's in London when this, this is happening. And part of the part of the thing was the path of the Martian sort of heads towards London. Right, well, in the beginning, he also describes how they were had no information or very little information because they're mm-hmm. trying to get the papers and the papers some of them thought it was a hoax mm-hmm. or you know or they have very kind of strange descriptions right and they had problems with uh, telegraph exactly so that, that was their, their main way to communicate with telegraph but the destruction happened so quickly right at, like, at ground zero where the Martians land there, like there's not a lot of information that gets out and throughout this time there's also like additional cylinders falling so right like one falls every day or so right there's ten, 10 i think total so the brother's in london so he he sort of doesn't get the brunt of the disaster until a few days later well so what happens is all of a sudden realize they realize what's going on and and like maybe sunday evening yeah. they decide that people need to evacuate mm-hmm. 
And, and that's when all this shenanigans are Right. Happening. So he tries to go to the train station, like he goes to Waterloo Station, which yeah. is a place I've visited. <laughs> and that's just impossible. The trains aren't either, either not running or it's just impossible to get on it and, mm. and or even buy a ticket because people want like a lot of money for it mm. and stuff. So he winds up, uh, is he walking? Or is he maybe he's got a cart with a horse or something? Or a bike. He gets a bike at some point. Maybe um, a bike. Yeah, there's so many different means of transportation throughout this uh no and, cars though right there, there's a they do mention cars but I mean, but none of our main characters use right. cars yeah they just talk about the the escape from london how how mm -hmm. people are getting away so now the martians actually get to london and they used another weapon which he describes which is right. called the black smoke right and what's interesting about the black smoke is in terms of the structure of the story we hear first about the black smoke through the brother's story told to us through the narrator and then we get later the narrator's experience of the black smoke right. for the first time so it's just very strange kind of backwards so yeah so the the brothers trying to escape london and the black smoke is is basically like a like a chemical weapon right like but, a poison yeah. gas yeah. which as far as i know was never used as a weapon anywhere yet at, at that time in history right it was something that happened world war one as far as i know he was ahead of his time so the brothers, the brothers trying the the, the the poison gas basically like um, you know poisons the air and obviously if you breathe it you die but it also goes into the water. Right, the but I, it's like after a while it just settles and leaves like a black. Uh, yeah, like a, like a film scum. on the uh, or, or scum on on, on the a, ground. But there's an interesting description of how it interacts with water. It like goes into water and then sinks through. Right. So that the water that's clear is still safe to drink, which I thought was interesting. So the brother's trying to escape London, right? And he's on the on a road, and he comes across these ladies, who are being accosted by ruffians. Right, and he kind of rough, ruffians. <laughs> Since he's a boxer, he has a fight with some of them. Yeah. He knocks some of them out, and one of the ladies actually brought a revolver, so she shoots up in the air, and the guys kind of give up and run away. So mm -hmm. he joins them, and trying to go somewhere. At one point, they're like on some side roads or something, mm -hmm. and they come to a main road. And it's just impossible to cross because yeah. there's like a river of people escaping and there's some interesting descriptions of like this so some guy who drops his money yeah. and it spills all over the place he tries to pick it up he gets run over and smushed into the yeah the mud and um yeah there's a there's uh like a little girl who gets separated from her mom right it's just chaotic and the this is one of the times where like the writing really shines and she's like just like imagining like how chaotic the scene is and they can't get their horse and cart through and they have to turn around so and the the two ladies he's traveling with are like a what, a mother and a and daughter or something yeah or like a, a, a wife and a sister or something like he has some kind of weird description of them the one lady is like really on top of her game and like really like capable of doing a lot of stuff and the other one's like sort of going crazy yeah. and like just wants to go home and she keeps talking about how she if they just go back that they'll be fine all these things but, you know, she can't go home because her, her home was attacked. And they end up ultimately going to the shore, getting on a boat. Right. So the other interesting thing while, while they're trying to escape is basically the old society falls apart. Right. So things like, you know, having food, for example. Mm -hmm. And they wind up not having any food or, or people just simply break into houses or whatever and steal what they can. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what happened to the ladies, right? So they, they they got to the shore and they actually got passage onto a steamer. Right. Had to pay some extra yeah. know, 10 pounds, which was a lot of money at mm -hmm. the time. And the steamer starts pulling away, either going up further north in England or maybe go to France or something. Mm -hmm. And while that's happening, the Martians are actually at the shore as well. Mm -hmm. And he describes this fight between, what was the ship called? Um, something Thunder? Thunderbolt? No. Thunder Child? Thunder Child. Thunder Child, yeah. So there's like a warship that, that basically rams one of the Martians. Right. It rams more than one, right? It rams one and then it rams another one. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think and, it might take um, down two. So, but that, it's sort of an interesting description because basically the Martians, you know, in their tripods are really tall and they can wade out into the water. But as they wade into the water, they get shorter and shorter, right? Because right? their legs go deeper and deeper. So at some point, their bodies are level with the ships. Right. So the Thunder Child is able to... Uh, to ram them and the end is destroyed in the process so it's that's not, not, it's not i didn't thought the thing was very clear i mean they did 
It, it showed black smoke at it, but I don't know if it was. Uh... No, I think it was destroyed in the process because mm. I think he says there, and there was nothing of the Thunder Child left. Okay. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. I would like it if it wasn't. But <laughs> I guess one of the things he was trying to show is that that, as is typical now of these kinds of uh, stories, is that the weapons that humans have are not effective against alien weapons. Right. Exactly. And that was the thing. It's like they, we were just getting steamrolled by the Martians here. There was like nothing that could be done. And more and more Martians were coming. So that's where the brother's story ends. Yeah, I think it ends when he's kind of he's on a sailing boat. away on, on the boat. Yeah. Yeah, he got out of there. So, meanwhile, our narrator <laughs> is um, they're they're like maybe like a week or so into this now. Right, and they go into some house trying to hide. Right. So he's with this man who he calls the curate. And he starts to note pretty early on that he and the curate really don't get along very well. Yeah, the, the man is losing it a bit. Yeah. yeah he's he's. Uh... And they there's like, you know, our narrator's not not really about this guy. Um, but this guy just kind of keeps following he's him. He's kind there. of following him, kind of whiny. Yeah. Um, yeah, they go into the, like a house. They just pick a house and go inside to look for food and stuff. It so happens while they're there that yet another meteor falls and uh, it falls like right Almost next on the to the house. house. Yeah, yeah. right next to a house. Like yeah. half the house comes down and so they're trapped in this house. Part Partially because of like physically being blocked in, um, though they, there are exits ultimately, but mostly because now there's another uh, the cylinder. The Martians, yeah. Right, there's another Right pit. out and they, they find like a in the kitchen or somewhere there's like a little slit they can actually observe what's going on right so they get to watch so then find out what the martians want humans for right <laughs> <laughs> so surprise surprise the martians eat people well they drink blood they drink blood well but then everything's always described as being like the bones being picked clean so they've got to eat the rest of it well it's possible that other things eat eat the meat like dogs or whatever i guess or animals yeah, so at some point in time, towards the end, the narrator stops and describes the Martians' bodies. And one of the things he talks about is that they don't have a digestive system like we do. That they like just directly, more or less, inject the blood of other animals into their veins. Right. It's a like much more efficient, efficient way. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of like eating and digesting, they just sort of inject it in. And he so. describes them as these kind of large heads, kind of a thing, big brain, mm -hmm. kind of a thing. With yeah. They had eyes. They have eyes. They have tentacles. Tentacles, like by their mouth or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like they have eight tentacles, four on each side, and they have like this flat thing on the back of their head that um, turns out like to be an eardrum ear. or something. Yeah. yeah. And they're like kind of brown and wishy, looking. So, and it turns out like they they find out later they can they can't see like violet and blue or something like some colors that they don't right. see or whatever also he speculates that they communicate via psychic uh, right in right the, uh, esp or something right because he because they make some noises um and we'll talk about this in a little bit in terms of how this is similar or, or dissimilar to some of the other aliens we've seen but they make some noises but they're they're so organized in what they do and they don't like speak often enough for at least his interpretation of it, like for that to be enough, like he thinks there must be something additional. So they they hide out in this house. So what happens was when they get there and get trapped, they they find some food and then he tries to organize it, saying, you know, we eat this little bit every day, so mm -hmm. it lasts at least ten days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the curate's not about that life. <laughs> the curate is just just losing it. He sees. Uh, yeah, and getting crazier and crazier. Mm -hmm. He wants to eat his food. He cries. He whimpers, mm -hmm. and um, he wants him to be quiet because he's afraid the Martians will right like right outside will hear. Exactly, and ultimately the the curate does start making too much noise and starts saying like I'm going to end it. I'm just going to go out there and like end it now. And uh, our narrator hits him on the back of the head with like the butt of cleaver a or cleaver. Yeah. yeah. But then it uh, knocks him out. Right. But the noise does attract the Martians at that point. Right. So our narrator runs and hides, but the tentacles, the Martian tentacles, come in the house and find uh, the curie and take him and eat him. Right, for a snack. Uh -huh. <laughs> and he has to hide in the coal cellar. Yeah. 
So he goes into the coal tunnel and like piles coal around him. And there's a great scene where he's hiding in there, in the coal on the wood. And he can see, uh, well, he hears. He hears because it's dark. Right, he hears like the tentacles going through the house and like searching. And then the tentacles come to the door to the coal cellar. And then they pull the latch and they open the door. And there's a great line where he's like, Martians know how doors work. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, yeah, they do. And the Martian ultimately takes a piece of coal and doesn't take anything else. (laughs) (laughs) So it doesn't find him. So he survives. Waits a few more days. Right. He waits a few more days and all of a sudden things get quiet. So Mm -hmm. he... uh, And then he starts noticing this red weed. Yeah. So things get quiet, and ultimately the Martians... Well, I mean, he goes out, and the Martians are gone from that right. pit. So. From that particular pit, right. And uh, so it's safe for him to, to sort of be out. And he's in the house for, like, two weeks, or, like, a yeah. long time. Yeah. Like, 15 days, I think. Yeah. And, there's yeah, there's this red plant. So, yeah, so when he steps up, he's all of a sudden, you know, the fields that used to be green, they're all covered in this red weed. So he wanted to find out what happened in London, so he starts kind of making his way towards London. Mm-hmm. But, uh, what, but what's the red weed? Like, what, what is it? So, I mean, it looks like it's like a plant that was brought by the Martians, mm-hmm. right? And it just started spreading like wild. And he said it's uh, much uh, more prominent in your water. So whenever there was water, it right. would grow quite a bit. Right. It was like a... He tries to eat it at one point. He says it's like watery and it has like a metallic kind of taste. Mm-hmm. Ew. <laughs> So yeah, so he in in the same the same paragraph where he describes the plant and how it spread everywhere, he also described how it all suddenly sort of died. All there are places and, and it starts dying right, right. because it, it was exposed to uh, bacteria on mm-hmm. Earth, and then he kind of gets it's kind of a foreshadowing. Hint. Yeah, it's a, it's a wee bit of foreshadowing there. Uh, and he yeah he talks a little bit about how it you know it's not designed to live on Earth and it it couldn't deal with the bacteria that all the earth foliage can deal with that kind of thing and he's been also like foraging for food and (coughs) hardly there's any like hardly anything to eat he managed to find some roots and find like mushrooms and stuff yeah yeah drinks a lot of really dirty water in a lot of places yeah so he so then he runs into the soldier right so him and the soldier meet up again right and the soldier is not not so okay he's like well "Eh." the soldier is is planning to survive yeah (laughs) <laughs> so you know he at first when when they first meet they don't recognize each other mm-hmm. so the soldier kind of tells him to get off my land essentially this is mine yeah and and get away from here but then they recognize each other so they spend some time together and the soldier kind of has this new theory of how how human race can survive underground mm-hmm. right and this is sort of when he starts to talk about that um we are to the martians as like ants are to us and so the best way for humans to survive is to like go live underground, not be a nuisance to the Martians, just become like a mildly annoying like vermin kind of situation. Right. And um, you know, learn. Ultimately, his idea is that a human could learn how to operate one of these machines, one of these tripod machines. Right. And uh, and could, fight the Martians. Could fight them back exactly. And he has some interesting ideas about how the how the Martians will take humans as pets and. Uh, <laughs> have humans hunt other humans and, and have right. human farms and like some things like that. And then, you know, th- he starts digging because he thinks he can uh, dig under the house that they're staying in and connect to like the sewers that go into London. So this way you right. can be, you know, live in the sewers. Right. And uh, he's got like a shovel and like, he's going at it. He's digging. Well, he's, he's uh, got the narrator to do the same. Yeah. You know? So at first, our narrator's like all for this, and he thinks this is great, and you know th- this guy's gonna survive. We don't have to just give up, whatever. And then the narrator sort of starts to think about it a little bit more critically, and starts to think like. And the guy is like a little bit crazy. Yeah, uh, the narrator realizes that like the tunnel he's dug is like not really that deep, and the guy's been working on this apparently for like weeks, and he's like not really made any progress, and it doesn't make any sense to dig this tunnel. Why don't you just go? enter the sewer from a, like a, a manhole, like a sewer right. entrance, <laughs> uh, and sort of starts to pick apart this uh, plan. This plan, yeah, and, and gets a qu- pretty quickly disillusioned of it. So then he, I think he leaves him and he decides to go to London. Yeah. He, well, basically, so the, I think the narrator says he, he feels like he betrayed um, like his wife and stuff for like basically stopping trying Searching to go find her. her. Yeah, right. Yeah. 
so he yeah he heads off to London at that point. So when he gets there, he talks about what it looks like, you know, the, the parts that were covered by, by the black smoke, mm-hmm. and he sees dead bodies of horses and people still around. Mm-hmm. And then finally, at one point, he starts hearing this strange sound. Yeah, the the ululu. Ululu. Yeah, it's like a, he calls it a ululation, I guess. And it's like this constant chronic sound that's going on through the whole. And it's this sort of very interesting. You know, post-apocalyptic kind of landscape right. where like all the buildings are crumbling there's bodies everywhere and skeletons and no living people he doesn't see any of the right. living people right. in london and the sound is going and going and finally at one point when he's in london and i think he sees some martians from a distance Maybe, like in ver- yeah. like in various places at one point the the sound suddenly stops and at first when he had first heard the sound it bothered him but then the fact that the sound stops after having gone for so long bothers him more. And he, um... I think he finds the place where he was trying to walk towards it, trying to find where the sound was coming from. Mm-hmm. Right, then he gets to a place where a couple of these tripods just kind of, kind of dead. Yeah. And so he, he has this moment where he just kind of throws all caution to the wind and says, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna go, I'm just gonna end it, and, th- you know, this is gonna be it. And he goes up to the tripods and finds that they're uh, being feasted on by crows. And he sees, like, the... Because uh, there's a Martian inside each tripod. Right. And he sees, like, the gooey Martian, like, hanging out of the tripod and the crows, like, picking at it. And uh, starts to walk around and realize all the tripods are dead. Right. And what killed them? Well, wouldn't you know it, they don't have bacteria on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> so in the, that, that's what happens when the Martians are exposed to the bacteria on Earth. They get infected, basically. And so it mm-hmm. took, them, took a few weeks for them to die, but they ultimately die from the exposure. Right. Which is not unrealistic. Right. You know, it's one of the... I mean, that even happens... You know, that happens with people... With, you know, colonization on Earth. And historically, right. one of the problems was that you'd bring new diseases to people who didn't have right. uh, the immune system for it. Right. So all the Martians die from the bacteria. So then there's like a chapter or two of reconstruction. Right. Well, the, if you're wondering what happened to his wife, he goes back to his house. Mm-hmm. And while he's there, his wife arrives. So, yeah. they, they, so there's a happy ending. Yeah. And clearly his brother was okay because you know, he's he not told the story. In the motor. Yeah. <laughs> so... So yeah, he's reunited with his wife. They're able to start rebuilding. There's sort of speculation um, by the characters as to, you know, what what are the chances that the Martians will invade again? There's some speculation that the Martians are landing on Venus. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, they think they see some activity that indicates the Martians are maybe colonizing Venus. You know, whether or not they would be prepared for another Martian invasion, that kind of thing. But yeah, that's. I mean, I guess technically it's a happy ending. Yeah. Right. And I think part of it, too, I guess maybe one of the themes that comes out of the way the book ends, sort of thinking about, like, the the balance of power and the sort of, like, like the balance of power in the animal kingdom kind of mm-hmm. thing, is that humans evolved to live on Earth and so evolved to be immune to these bacteria, because and the Martians didn't, and so they were all, like, no matter what, kind of technology they had they would always be at a disadvantage right which is interesting um okay so we covered the plot we hit a a bunch of the different stuff that we want to talk about so let's talk about a few things in terms of science fiction ideas there's this whole section where he talks about how the martians don't have wheels and their technology doesn't seem to have right like didn't bend wheels which is kind of weird but it, it happened among human civilizations like the Aztecs did not have wheels. Oh, really? I mean, they had toys that had wheels, but not as a means of transportation. And somebody posited that, like, the Aztecs, let's say, lived in the mountains. There was not too many flat areas. Mm. So, wheel is not that useful. Oh. Yeah, Um, and and he describes their technology also as being sort of, like, um, just built very differently than how, like, a human would build it. Like, the way that the pieces of the tripod fit together and stuff. Right. I had to do more with, like... 
fr like friction than he like also pieces. talked about the machine that they used to build other stuff yeah right like he was observing them from from the house i imagine this like a crab like machine that w was walking around and, and making stuff yeah right yeah it was really neat so there was some and like then of course like we were saying before we have some of these classic science fiction ideas that pop up first here like the heat ray which obviously took off in science fiction right <laughs> and uh the the chemical the black smoke right which took off in real life so <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> in, in not so good a way in terms of science fiction that maybe didn't work there's you were thinking about the space the travel. space travel so now we know so much more about space travel at the time the idea was that you would make a really big gun and you shoot people mm -hmm. and that's what jules verne wrote when he wrote about trip to the moon and this is they seem to wasn't entirely clear but that's what they implied right but i mean that's because that's the only technology i could think of back then right and that that was just for when the martians were coming to earth right because they were like observing mars right the idea of psychic aliens i don't like that you know the, the, but again this is just something deposited that doesn't mean you know at the time mm -hmm. i don't know if radio was even a technology yet Mm -hmm. So if the the aliens had radio to communicate with each other, you know, it would seem miraculous. Right, exactly. Or the the other thing that I always like to think about is like, what if they communicated by sound, but they used a sound range that was out of human hearing? Right. Right. Yeah, I th I, th I like that because I sort of like our narrator is sort of unreliable in the sense that our author is sort of unreliable because the author, you know, imagined a lot of things and maybe couldn't have. You know, couldn't have even imagined something like the radio, uh, that kind of stuff. But yeah, I don't, I don't think them being psychic is necessary. Yeah, to the I mean, story right, or... right. I mean, he just. Yeah. The, the what was interesting is that because this was nineteenth century, you know, it's like how, you know, what the life, like regular life, was like back then, and mm -hmm. all of a sudden it gets disrupted by this this crazy thing. But the fact that everybody waited for papers to come out to get news. You know, yeah. there, was, there was no radio, no TV. That's how you got news. Mm -hmm. And papers were published many times a day. Yeah. Uh, all communications between cities was via telegraph. And to travel was, well, you took a train. Yeah. Or you went by horse and buggy. So there were some interesting uh, limitations there. Well, that sort of make, you know begs the question, you know, how different would this story be if it happened now, like in 2018? Right. So, you know. well, you can find out because <laughs> <laughs> clearly this this story was made into several movies throughout uh, since it's been published. Yeah. So that there's Orson Welles, the radio show, there's actual movie that was made maybe in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And there's a movie that was with Tom Cruise that was made maybe 10 years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Which one? It's called the War of the Worlds. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and so maybe we should put that on our list as well. It was pretty bad. Yeah. And you know, the the aliens come to Bayonne. <laughs> but this kind of answers the question. It's very similar structure. It's like you know where they, you know, try to escape, and and mm -hmm. there's like the, the scene at the ferry almost is almost exactly replayed in oh, that really? movie, and they get stuck in some house, mm -hmm. and you know this kind of stuff. It's very. I, I, you haven't watched the show, The Walking Dead, or, or read mm -hmm. the comics, but it's very, this sort of post-apocalyptic, you know, sudden giant traumatic thing that happens, reactionary kind of, of stories ha have a lot of that stuff in common. This like when I was right. reading this, uh, it read very much like The Walking Dead. Where yeah, I'm wondering though movies. if if he was the first one to do that. Or whether there were other stories kind of like that. I bet you there's lots of stories from wars. That, from that, war, yeah. Uh, it must be because imagine it would, I imagine it'd be the same thing if you're living in your nice little peaceful town and your neighbor just suddenly invades you. Right. You know, until World War One, the wars weren't quite as 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 total. You know. So. Right, but I mean, it doesn't. If you if you only live in a small part, section of the world, you know, until r rather recently, people didn't travel that far. Right. They were born right. and lived and died sort of in the same area just because traveling was so difficult. You know, if it doesn't need to be so total if the clan next to you invaded your clan's planes or whatever, sure. yeah. then that was it. That was everything to you. So I think that sort of plays into um, some of some of the many themes of this story. I love literary themes. Okay. Um, but, I mean, I think huge, huge here is, like, the, the whole concept broadly the theme of war is hell well, like war is bad that's a you know pretty basic very broad theme right that definitely is played out here right it's it's i was kind of 
before reading this book again, I had assumed that it was written after World War One. Oh, interesting. And I, I was totally surprised that it wasn't. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's part of the interesting thing is that it did sort of, it has that feel. It does feel like a war story, mm -hmm. but which is interesting because is it a war? Is it really because it's called War of the Worlds, but it's not really a war so much as like a steamroll. Yeah. Right. Well, you know. There, there's. I mean, calling it a war is kind of being generous to the human efforts that were well, made. they tried, you know. They killed, like, maybe, like, max three Martians. And well, like, as far as we know, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's sort of interesting with the title is War of the Worlds, and the it's really not a, a war so much as it is an invasion of Earth. Right. Along those lines is, I kind of like the story is because it's just told from one person's point of view, essentially, mm -hmm. as opposed to a lot of the present day science fiction is like all galactic yeah you know it's like you you find out what the whole galaxy is going to die you yeah know, because you know <laughs> luke skywalker doesn't do something or other and and this is just told like what what would it look like on a human scale as mm. opposed to this kind of unrealistic galactic scale mm -hmm. so we, we we have no idea what's going on and because he didn't have know what was going on exactly and i think well i think that's part of what when you read like war stories that is sort of a classic way to write a war story because it you know part of the danger and the fear associated with being in a war is that you are just one individual right and really you as an individual don't have a lot of power right so you know even when he's sitting and talking to the soldier and the soldier's saying you know we can survive and we can rebuild and da, 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 it's like it part of what our narrator realizes is that's totally futile like that whole idea is this guy's digging a tunnel in the basement of a house somewhere near <laughs> London. <laughs> like, what? what is he doing? That's, he doesn't really have any power to do anything. I, I think it's really interesting that this was before World War One, Because one thing I think about the genre is that when you're writing speculative fiction, science fiction or fantasy, it's one of the great things you can do with it is take real world issues and frame them in a fictional way so that your reader can be more critical of them, right? Because it's easier to engage with and be more critical of something that isn't close to you. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like easier to like you tackle racism through Star Trek by having, you know, all Klingons and Vulcans don't like each other. Well we as humans can look at two fictional species and say two fictional races and say, Oh well, racism is racism is bad, obviously they shouldn't be racist towards each other. Right. It's easier for an audience to engage with that than if you were to put like real racial, racial issues on screen. So it's sort of interesting because this story puts real like war and invasion issues and sort of turns it on its head because not only are the aliens invading Earth and like winning straight up, but they're invading England and England invaded everywhere else in the globe. Right, that's true. And it's so it sort of puts the English in the situation in the position of um, the people that had been colonized by England. Right. So it's sort of like turning. It's like playing with that Interesting. dichotomy. Interesting. Didn't think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that that was kind of neat. I don't know if that was his point or just because he lived in England. That's where he said it. You know. <laughs> yeah. I, I, the thing is, uh, this is probably more of a topic for the next show, but. The fact that we kind of ascribe human motives to to aliens, mm -hmm. right? Why would they care about invading Earth? You know, why, why, you know, we are in, as humans are into invading other countries and this, mm -hmm. but you know why? Mm -hmm. You know, so he there's some speculation about what it might be, but right. And so I mean, like in the story, do we have any indication that the Martians? came to extinguish humans or were they just reacting to the fact that humans started attacking them i yeah. guess technically the martians attacked first with the heat yeah the, the the human the, the martians came to earth right so there was there was no humans going to mars so and the potential they, they seem to hint that they went to venus as well yeah but maybe they needed to resettle i don't know yeah, yeah. and uh, one thing i was wondering was the martians seemed to sort of beeline for london like wherever because i'm not i've never been to, to england so i don't know where um well, they, they landed like in the suburbs and they wanted to go towards where there's lots of food. Oh, I see that. That would be a reason. Because I, I was wondering, like, did they know that was the capital? Did, like, was there like some 
because he's, he opens the book saying that, you know, they didn't know they were being watched. Right. And I guess they still don't know if they were being watched. There's no indication that the Martians knew anything in particular about them. That they could eat them. Right? Just that they would be delicious, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think the, then the other sort of big theme that is, appears throughout and is very interestingly uh, handled is just the way that people deal with traumatic experiences and the, the ways that big traumatic things happen while being juxtaposed with like regular everyday life, right? Like I think I, I was mentioning before we started recording the um, one of the first days after the first shell lands in the story, our main character wakes up the next morning and like his neighbor's like gardening and gives him some strawberries. Right. Right. And then, then our character like eats the strawberries and goes to check out the cool alien shell that had landed in the field. And th throughout the story, there are these moments where he's like, he's like re stops and reads the paper at some point, like after the destruction has really started. And it's this very normal activity in this very abnormal setting. Right. I think it's fascinating because that's, I guess when you think about big, horrible events, you think like... The well, that's what happens in the world. One day you're just kind of <laughs> eating strawberries from your garden. The next day you, you, you're trying to, you know, get not, not to get run over by things on the road, trying to escape from... Right, from exactly. Yeah. So I thought, I thought that was very well done. That added a lot to the, uh, the tone, I guess, of the whole thing. Do you want to talk about the, their reaction to the flying machines? But they didn't have flying machines yet. They just said they were, that were Martians appeared to have... To, to work on, on, on solving the secret of flight. Right, so the Martians were trying to make a flying machine, and this was pr before we had flying machines. We had balloons. We, yeah, well, before we had planes. And that, that, I just think it's interesting. Because, like, I, I mean, I guess maybe I'll go watch the Tom Cruise movie, but, uh, you know, thinking about the story nowadays, like, what technology could the Martians have that would seem like so amazing to but us? But the thing is, a, a lot of the, the part of this, the story of this book is that how the social fabric just breaks up. Yeah. And you don't realize how much you depend on, on just like, you know, so we have internet, that's fine. But what the electricity goes away, all of a sudden there's no internet anymore. Right, exactly. You know, we have cell phones that can take pictures, but the cell phone towers go away. You can't call anybody, mm -hmm. right? So it's... it's um, there's lots of infrastructure that, that, that kind of underlies civilization mm -hmm. that can be easily, you know, ripped apart. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what happens in Tom, Tom Cruise's movie. Mm -hmm. um, but in the same thing here, like trains are, become useless because, you know... Well, the tracks get destroyed. Tracks get destroyed or people aren't, you know, too many people try to get on. Mm -hmm. And telegraph lines are broken so you can't have any communication. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why, like you were saying, that this is sort of just like the one point of view of like the one person's experience right. that in order to tell this story I think you need that because if you do like a broader kind of thing you don't have that sense of helplessness and urgency right. and stuff and you're, right. you're if you have like too many characters or something that's too broad and galactic right it's well like like a movie like 4th of July you know mm -hmm. the, another alien invasion with these big yeah. ships come out everybody knows where they are yada yada mm -hmm. yada there's communications all throughout right you know. right I mean, I think those are the big major themes and stuff. What about, well, I said my favorite scene already is that scene in the beginning when he sees mm -hmm. the tripod in the thunderstorm. Uh, yeah, I always like the discovery, like when they first uh, land and, and people wonder, what the hell is this? And then they come out and start shooting people. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so in all the like various monster movies, I always like the part from the beginning to when the monster appears. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it's just the same. Yeah. Least favorite stuff about the book? I mean, I think generally it was very good. I, I liked a lot of it. I think that, and this might just be me as a modern reader, there's too much description of specifically where he's, like, walking. And I know that that's just, like, a style thing over time. Like, if you look at 19th century writing, 20th century writing, 21st century writing. I almost writing. was tempted to, like, go on a map and try to draw a line. Draw it out. Because <laughs> it really, like, there, you know, there's a really detailed description of, like, you know, I left such and such, such place and went right and went down this road. And, and it's like, it just takes up a lot of words in the story that, I, I mean, as a modern reader, I didn't need. But I know that, like, you know, you go back and read things like things like Victor Hugo wrote and stuff. And, like, it, they spend huge amounts of time describing 
the places and I guess it's because you can't like Google it and see what it looks That's like. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now it's like, you know, if you're going to read Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, you could skip the whole first chapter. He just describes Paris like street by street. Just like watch the Disney movie and you get like the I image. I don't think the Disney movie gives you a good idea of what Paris is like. But... <laughs> it's good enough for you to read the rest of the book. <laughs> so uh, what was your least favorite uh, oh, so, so I had difficulty with that, and I also had difficulty. The whole story of the curate was sort of interesting, and I don't know if I'm I'm thinking too hard about it or trying to make excuses for it or whatever, but I didn't really get the whole curate plotline because ultimately our main character commits, uh, sort of commits murder, right? He knocks right. him down and then he gets eaten. But but the main character, main narrator specifically says that he, while he killed the curate, he does not feel bad about it. Which I was kind of like, well, that's weird. But then at the same time, the narrator can't stop thinking about the fact that the curate was killed and eaten. So at first I was like, you know, if this murder did nothing for the characterization, why did we bother having it? It was kind of a waste. I was a little bit confused. But then I was thinking about it harder and I was like, well, maybe well, the whole point Well, it's like, you know, it's... preview of PTSD, you know. So he, right. he says it's, oh, well, you know, I did what I had to do, you know, ta-da. But mm. then later on it's going to come back on him. Maybe, yeah. Maybe it's deeper than I gave it credit for. No, the the curate and the soldier, I guess uh, now they'll be like almost typical characters in any kind of post-apocalyptic story. Like the curate was this needy guy who just couldn't take it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and the soldier was like a survivalist, you know, do anything to survive, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, they sort of, they sort of uh, counterbalance each other Yeah. in that way. Did you have any least favorite uh, portions? I don't know, probably the same as you. Some descriptions kind of kind of dragged on a little bit. Mm -hmm. And he names all these towns, and it's like somebody who lived around that time probably would know. But it's like he drops these names, and I have... I actually recognize a couple of them because I've been to London a few times. So, mm -hmm. like when he was walking around London in naming streets, there's some famous streets that I've been on. Mm -hmm. And some of the towns he mentions actually were like stops on the on the train when you go to and from mm. the airport or something so <laughs> the airport point, with flying machines right flying machines <laughs> crazy um oh, well do you okay do you think it i mean we've sort of been talking about this the whole time do you think it aged well do you think the story actually yeah i think so too and because it you know his description of 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 the technology of the martians kind of is in the language of that time mm -hmm. and it fits right so yeah and the technology the martian has martians have interestingly enough is still advanced from what we have right like we don't i mean like do we have heat beams heat rad if we do i don't see them normally so i don't right. know about them we certainly don't have them walking on tripods right burning forests right you know, his descriptions are still very alien, which I think is really interesting. Mm. So I think it aged well. I'm, I mean, I'm not, not surprised it's been done and redone a hundred times. It's, it's a good idea. But I liked it. I, and I thought the writing was fantastic. I did, Again, I did not expect really? the writing to be that good. So did you like it? Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, okay, I think we basically picked apart the story. I think so. Do we have, I mean, I want, there's... So plenty of comparison to be done between like the appearance of these aliens and aliens we've seen across the other stories the ways the humans interact with these aliens and what makes something alive like that, that, that kind of stuff right so i think in the next podcast we do we're going to sit down so what, were, what are the five stories we've done we did um left hand of darkness right with earth by ursula Le Guin. That, solaris mm -hmm. uh, uh, the story of your life right um, Piggies. Yeah, Speaker for the Dead. Yeah. Speaker, right. Yeah. And, and this one. Yeah, we've had some other aliens that are. It's interesting, like the. I guess we could talk about like the levels of sentience and stuff like that. And. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just the whole notion how to portray an alien thing. Yeah. In, in, in the book, and I've read since then. I've read some others with some other interesting ideas. So. Mm -hmm. We can save it for then. Have any uh, final closing thoughts? On uh, this this our last weird alien book. Do we know? Did we pick a theme for the next batch of books we're gonna do? I thought we were going to do um, dystopias. Oh yes, we're gonna do right. Dystopias. The reason, well, which is kind, this kind of, yeah. this is more the, apocalyptic. The, the, the preview is that H.G. Uh, Wells wrote some wrote some utopias. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to read some of those before we get into that other stuff. 
We can read a utopia amongst reading the dystopias. I mean, how do you know it's a dystopia unless you know what a utopia is? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right. Okay, I think that's that's it for this episode of History in Reverse. Uh, that was us talking about War of the Worlds. Next time, uh, we will be doing a comparison across the five stories that we've read um, about all the weird aliens, and then we'll be getting into, I guess, starting in 2019, the dystopias right. and uh, reading through those. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. It's going to be hard to remember the order of events for this because it does a lot of walking around. Um, okay. You have your notes? Yeah.